This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Every Friday evening on BBC Two, from March to October, the immortal words, hello and welcome to Gardener's World, are not only our cue to starting the weekend, but also an invitation to enter a very private world created by Monty Don and his wife, Sarah. I'm Lucy, and in today's podcast, I'm talking to Monty about his garden that's been 30 years in the making. He tells us it's unrecognisable from the patch of grass by the tumble-down home they bought back in the early 1990s. And now there's nowhere he'd rather be. But it's been a slow process. So I started by asking him to take us back to that time. Longmeadow... One of the things that I've sort of always realised with a jolt is we began the garden exactly 30 years ago. Well, 30 years is quite a long time for most people. So it is, it's been a long, slow process. It's not something that happened overnight. Although, if you had visited this garden 20 years ago, it would be remarkably similar. I mean, there's a lot that's been added since then, but the basic structure was in place and looked not so very different to it does now. Certainly, oh, almost 25. I mean, there was, it was up and sort of absolutely running by about 2,000. So for the last 20 years at least, most of it has been a question of maintenance rather than, than creativity. However, it was a field when we came. It was an empty field. And it had two trees in it, one little hawthorn bush, which still exists in the copse, and one large hazel outside the back door, which still exists in the spring garden. And that was it. Nothing else except for it had been um, 
not grazed or cut for about five years. So there were brambles, long tussocky grass, lots of weeds. And somewhere in amongst that long tussocky grass, an extremely bad-tempered pony, uh, which we inherited. So, I mean, I, I won't go into the, all of it because it is a long story, but, but so I cut it back and I laid it out and I spent a year designing it. And, and I, the thing I always say to people is, time spent thinking about a garden, planning a garden, walking it, marking it out with sticks and string and whatever you've got is never time wasted. That, you know, that if it takes you a year, it takes a year. And it, it took me a, a year. Uh, and I'm very glad I did do that and I didn't rush into it because by and large, I got it right. I mean, the, there are obviously things I know now I would do differently. I, didn't qu- I wasn't quite aware then which bits of the garden flooded, for example, which I learned too late to change some things. But by and large, it hasn't been a disaster. I also probably would have slightly changed the way, you know, to know where the sun goes at different times of year, at different times of day. I always preach that to other people, but I didn't quite follow it myself. You know, where's good places to sit in the evening, for example. Um, but we, we've we rectified that quite a lot. And, and then I set about making it. Now, for the first, well, five years, certainly, if not ten, it was a big labour. I was young. I was energetic. I spent all my spare time doing it. Um, I mean, you know, you can't you can't deny that it was a lot of work. Uh, you know, there was a lot of planting, a lot of digging, uh, and the the first area that really got made was what is now the cottage garden, which was for many years the vegetable garden, purely and simply, just full of vegetables, and really right up until about two thousand and four five. No, later, much later, 2012, because it was after we started to film here. When we started, it was still the vegetable garden. And then where the vegetable garden is now, in fact, where the wooden greenhouse is now, was the first overflow veg patch. That was the second veg patch. And then where the vegetable garden is now was a polytunnel, a big one, where I grew all my tomatoes. And we did have a greenhouse, for years, where the wildlife garden is. And then it was moved to where the paradise garden is, where it was, you will remember that, until about, well, four years ago, or whatever it was. Um, The orchard was originally extended right across the end of the garden. So where the writing garden is, where the cricket pitch is, where the vegetable garden is, uh, was all orchard right up until about 2000, so the first 10 years. The cots I planted from hazel seedlings that were from nuts buried by squirrels from the one hazel tree we had, and they kept popping up because the spring garden was the very first bit I made. Um, And the reason why the spring garden path curved slightly is because the original bit of garden was a circular border around that hazel, and I made a path that went round it. And then the circular border was extended and took over. It was grass, and we had a washing line there. And then that all got dug up. So the border, the ghost of the circular bed is in the border. Um, 
And your washing line has been relocated. It has been relocated to our backyard, which we never film in, but we have a little backyard Mm -hmm. outside the back door where we have, it's where we feed the birds, which is where we hang our washing. Uh, It's where we have a couple of fig trees and we have pots with mint in it, you know, what we use for mint tea. Um, In fact, we now have a couple of little raised beds in there for irises because it's very sunny and the raised beds are very dry, so we grow them on that. Um, but then, you see, in the, in the spring of 1993, exactly 29 years ago, I bought a whole load of trees. It's a long story, which I won't go into now, but by accident, rather like with Nan and I, we went on a holiday by accident. I went to buy a few trees and came back with 1,100. And I went to buy, I think I went to buy 12. These things happen. <laughs> Easy mistake, easy mistake to make. It's very easy. We've all been there. And um, I went to an auction, basically, and couldn't resist, couldn't resist what I saw. And they, that's why we have pleached limes everywhere. Because I bought a job lot of, I think it was 80 limes. And so I planted them. And, 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 you know, the way to use lime trees uh, in a small-ish space is by pleaching, basically having them fairly close together and then training them um, so that their branches grow horizontally. And actually, if you look, there are pleached limes right around the cottage garden, right down the lime walk, right down the long walk, and used to be right round the jewel garden. Now they're just on two sides of the jewel garden. So actually, you can see how I use them. Basically, they were in two big squares divided by long walks. That went down. Of course, and, what we all want to know is what on earth Sarah said to you the night you came home. <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, look what I've done. <laughs> she wasn't entirely pleased by it, um, mainly because we couldn't pay for it and it took a lot of wrangling to, to raise the money. But in those days, of course, it was all paid for by cheque and I did it on a Saturday. So there was no danger of the cheque bouncing before a Wednesday. So I had three days to raise the money, which I did. Um, Sarah has always been an entirely supportive partner in crime. It's, I mean, one of the things that I always say privately, and, and I should say publicly at every opportunity, it's her garden as much as mine. This is not my garden. It's our garden. And, I, you know, it's we always. And every significant decision, and quite a few insignificant ones, is made by the pair of us in agreement. And we have this principle that both of us has a veto over everything. And it's a very good way to run a system, because what it means is, is A, if you disagree, and we do a lot, you can't bully the other one into... You can't do it and say, live with it. You you might get... You might have terrible rows. You might have a lot of persuading. It might need negotiation. It might take two years before that plant goes in the ground. But when it does, you've agreed. And sometimes one of us will agree because we're just too bored with the arguing to, you know, for God's sake, yes, kind of stick it in the ground. But by and large, we genuinely agree. So... And sometimes it happens that you agree because for a quiet life and then really irritating, you realise they were right all along, you know. (laughs) But 
And Sarah is incredibly good on detail. And I'm quite good at the bigger picture and of starting things, getting, th- you know, getting things going. Um, I'm getting old and tired now, but I used to have lots of energy and, you know, was good. I, I mean, I've always said that I may not be the best gardener in the world, but I am one of the quickest. So I get a lot done. Uh, so it was a big project and we, we it, I, and I don't want to minimise that because it really dominated our lives. And our money too. All our spare money went into it. And it's, and, it's, and, and how big is it, just for those who, who haven't got a, a view acres. of it? Mm-hmm. It's two acres. And I think for a lot of people, that's a sort of quite a vague term. Two, two football pitches is a way to think about it. So smaller than many people might think, but still quite big as back gardens go. Now, when we made it, we made it entirely for ourselves, without any external motive whatsoever. Um, I started writing about it in 1994, so very early on, when I became the Observer's Gardening Correspondent. But I I would have still been the Observer's Gardening Correspondent if I lived in a flat. You know, in other words, it, it wasn't because of the garden. I wrote about it because that was my direct daily experience, you know, for, and, and it was being self-taught, writing about what I knew and what I was, what I'd done was always more real to me than writing what I'd learned in a classroom or, or, or whatever. Um, and we, we did, we did a series called Fork to Fork in 1999, which took a year to film, but we didn't do anything special for that. We filmed what we were already doing. And right up until Gardner's World came along, which was 2011, we started filming here. Everything we did was, was for us because that's what we wanted to do. And we've always grown a huge amount of vegetables. We've always, we like, I liked having 42 different apple trees varieties. We, the jewel garden was because we had a jewellery business and, and, and we wanted to sort of be creative about that. And, and it was, um, and, you know, the damp garden was because that was a bit that flooded and it was damp and, and so on and so forth. There was a kind of very elementary logic to everything we did. It, it wasn't conceived as a sort of, we only shared it. I mean, very, very seldom was it photographed until we, we started writing books about it and that sort of thing. But the basic structure is based around the fact that the site is long and thin, kicking out at right angles from the house. So there is a bit of a front garden in front of the house where we never film, which is basically the entrance, which is all topiary used, uh, which actually I love and I'm really, you know, I'm very happy with. But, but A, we don't film in it because it's our only access into the house. And B, for filming terms, it's a one-trick pony. We cut it once a year. You know, <laughs> that's it. That is absolutely the limit of its horticultural input. And has that um, ever changed? That was, or was that your original vision yeah, for the front? And it's always been like that. It's always been like that, except that um, the original planting was just alongside the path. And actually, originally, it stopped where there's a bit of a step. So for about, oh, five or six years there was quite a big strip of lawn either side of the original planting. And that's where the children played. I mean, one of the things I learned about parenting is children will always play near the house. 
you know, it's no good making a lovely lawn right at the end of the garden. They just won't use it. They, they want, when they're little particularly, they want to be as near the house as they can be. And that's where they kicked the ball around. That's where they left their bikes lying around. That's where originally there was a trampoline. Uh, although it seems inconceivable now because you can barely walk between them. But, I can't but imagine was. a trampoline in, yeah. in the I Dawn know. household. Uh, uh, well, we always had a trampoline. Absolutely. And I was a very enthusiastic user of it. Um, and then the plants grew. And then I, for this, the outer row were all cuttings that I grew. And they were tiny. They were like that, literally like that. And they've now become big. And this is the 30-year thing. But I remember going to Levens Hall 30 or more than 30 years ago and saying, how long would it take to recreate this from scratch? And the gardener thought and said, well, 30, perhaps 35 years. And I was astounded. I thought he would say 200 years or something like that. And, of course, I'm now seeing that after 30 years, you can grow anything almost, you know. Um, and then other things accrued, like the mound, for example, was our rubbish dump. It's where all sorts of subsoil, weeds, the bonfire, building rubble that we couldn't take to the tip, but, but we wanted to bury effectively. Um, and it accumulated. You know, do that for long enough. And you every time we planted a hedge or the brick paths, for example, have all got quite a deep layer of hardcore underneath them. So that means that the subsoil that was dug out had to go somewhere. And it all went on the mound. And, and so the mound was just a sort of unruly rubbish dump, really, uh, where the children played. But basically, it was a bonfire surrounded by heaps of soil until 2002. And we got a digger in to, to shape it. And we grassed it. And for a few years, it was just a, a mown grassy plateau, which had the trampoline on it. That made me think it. And we rather liked that. It was rather good. It was a kind of, it was, it was, a, it was like a, a sort of lands, land art. And then television came to town and said, well, this is boring. Can we not do something with it? And I slightly agree with them. So we terraced it and put walls in. And as you know, fiddled around for about five years trying to find the right format for it. But I think we've got there now. But that's very much our way. We try things. And if they don't work, we change them. And we go on changing them until we think they do work. And if we get lucky, it works first or second time. But if the mound, for example, I think has, has taken about six years to find its true feet. Uh, I've just changed the damp garden quite significantly. Uh, I've done changes to the dry garden, which are significant, but but not in conceptual. The dry garden is still the dry garden. The damp garden is still the damp garden. Uh, and that's very much our way. We So the garden has evolved in terms of expression and how we do it rather than what we do. So the jewel garden is still the jewel garden. The grass borders are still the grass borders. The cops are still the cops. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. 
Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! I'm, I'm intrigued by why you think the mound took so long to get right, because I think it, that kind of resonates with a lot of people who feel maybe they get a bit of the garden right, but then something, part of the garden, other part of the garden, you know, however small, you, there's always an area in the garden that never quite works. What, 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 what do you think that is? How, and how um, do you overcome that? Well, it's a contradiction in terms. If there's always an area in the garden that doesn't come right, then there always will be an area in the garden that doesn't come right, and that, that's, <laughs> the, that's the status quo. Um I think it comes down to two things. One is usage. And when I go visit people in a garden and they want advice, the first question I always say is, what is the garden for? What do you want from your garden? And if you can't answer that question, then you're never going to get it. It's never going to be the thing you want it to be. And very, very few gardens can be everything to everybody. Uh, And arguably no gardens. So, you know, is it, is, it, is it somewhere to relax in? Is it somewhere to entertain in? Is it somewhere to express your creativity? Is it somewhere to be a collection? Is it, is it somewhere that you want in the evening, in the morning, at weekends, in summer? You know, for, and the best example of this is, is that when Sarah and I gardened in London, which we did with the same passion as we do here, we were involved very much. Our work was dictated by the rhythms of the fashion industry. And in those days, there were two collections a year. Now they do about six or even monthly. And there was spring and autumn. And spring was March and autumn was October. So it meant that from mid-August to October, the, almost the end of October, the only time we ever got into the garden was in the evenings and maybe a Sunday because we were working flat out the rest of the time. And again, in winter... We had barely set foot in the garden in January and February and early March, or even late March, because it was dark when we were at home, and we worked seven days a week, and we didn't work at home. We worked in our studio. So we always, to us, the big... We used to go out into the garden at Easter, and that was really the first time we touched it from the previous, well, November. And we'd have this big clear out and big sort of start again and our main gardening time was easter through to early august and the months of september really were passed us by you know i mean we we, we would go and look at the garden and say hello remember me you know and it was and it would go no (laughs) (laughs) and whereas now um i have a different rhythm you know i mean a, a different time so I mean, I mean that's that's just one example. So that therefore, to create a garden that looked really good in in autumn would would be wasted on us. And, and so you need to know what it's for. And some bits of the garden don't fulfil that usage. It could be, you know, let's say 
I want a garden where in the evening I can sit and have a glass of wine and occasionally share that with my friends and family. And I would love that. And surrounded by lovely scents and beautiful colours and and walking it either out the back door or at the end of the garden and walking to it, I can run my hands along a, some rosemary and I can have, you know, a, and I, you and I could think of planting that would make that a lovely experience. But if there's a bit of the garden that never gets evening light, that is always in shade in the evening and only gets good light, let's say, first thing in the morning when you're madly trying to get dressed and get the children to school or yourself to work or whatever it is, you're not going to see it at its best. You're only going to see it when it's a bit gloomy or a bit sort of... And so therefore, the thing that you most want from a garden can't be fulfilled by that bit. So I think... That's a very long answer to to a very simple reason why there are bits that don't work. The other thing is that it could be because psychologically there's a barrier. I think one of the reasons why the mound didn't work is because it was our rubbish dump. It's where it was it was the sinkhole for the rest of the garden. It's where we had the bonfire. It it was the the bit that wasn't used. It was the bit that we didn't relate to as a garden. And it took a long time to get beyond that. And I think it only really creating the summer house has really made that work. Because it's the summer house that we go to or feel we can go to. Whereas before that, when we had the flat area, we never sat there, never. You know, we occasionally go there and say, oh, we should come and sit here. And that was the nearest we ever got to it. And it was a bit too far from the house. And psychologically a bit too... And I think that happens. And I think what you have to do is find the key that will make you use it. So, for example, it would have worked perfectly well if we decided to, the land art bit worked well. So if you decided to do something that was just a visual thing, that you just looked at, you didn't use, you just appreciated. Or if we grew a certain type of crop there. I mean, you know, it could be pears or it could have been artichokes. Something that had a distinct season and a distinct role. Um, there are other bits of the garden that I walk through all the time, which, for example, the camera heart doesn't visit very much. The herb garden, for example. I'm, I'm through that 20 times a day. So it's very, very real to me and very sort of pertinent to my daily life. Um, but I don't feel... Its main use is I walk through it all the time. And I think that, you know, you can you can work on that basis. And, of course, as a designer, you can create that. So you can say, okay, let's make the path go through that section or let's block you going there. So you have to go around, and that means you have to engage with that bit of garden, which would otherwise be an odd bit next to the neighbour's fence or whatever. Uh, and I think creatively, a good designer will, will work that out. And I'd love to go back, actually, to your um, your original point, which was you created the overview, the structure of the garden yeah. in the first year. Yeah. I guess with Sarah's input and very much Not this discussion. Not a lot, actually, to be fair. Um, it, was, it was 90% me, that. Because Sarah didn't then see herself really as a garden designer. She was someone who, who worked from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So, so it was very much my thing that. So this was your approach to give it a structure, yeah. and it's, and it's a very rigid structure. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you strip back everything else that's in it, you just see the bones of it. It is very yeah. linear. Um, yeah. Is that is that is that your style? Is that is that what you would do now? Uh, is it? I don't know. It's my yeah. style. I there were a number of reasons. Some were subconscious. Some were conscious. The conscious thing was at that time, I was very influenced by um, the Edwardian gardens of. Lutchins, of Mawson, of the whole Edwardian period, which essentially was about 1890 to 1920, bigger than just the Edwardian period, but um, pre-Hickup, pre-Sissinghurst, really, just as they were beginning. Although I was also very influenced by the whole Hickup, Sissinghurst sort of genre, because my generation of gardeners who came, I mean, I came to gardening as a child, but as an adult, came to it really in the 80s. That, those were the big names. Those were really, those were the Beatles and the Rolling Stones of gardening, you know, and, and Vita Zapfel West and Lawrence Johnson. And then you had, you know, the Grand Dame of, and, and Christopher Lloyd, obviously, and, and we had Rosemary Veery and you had all these people who were, who were making gardens, who in themselves had been influenced by those earlier gardens. So that was handed down and I was very strongly influenced by that. So, so that kind of, you know, pleached limes, hornbeam hedges, box hedges, I both inherited and was, it was a, just a direct conscious influence on me. And I absolutely wasn't exposed to, say, the European tradition of grass borders or anything like that. I just didn't know about it at all. And I don't think anybody did really at that stage. Um, the other reason, the, the second reason was it was, a design solution to a very awkward site. You have a house in the corner of a rectangle. You go out the back door and you practically hit a hedge. The the hedge goes diagonally across. And to get to the garden, you basically have to go out and turn left. Most of the garden is, is, is to the left of the house, which is right in the corner. So the design, my plan was, and I'm I don't disapprove of it. I mean, whether I do the same again, I'm not sure. But at the time, I thought, okay, let's make clear runway routes down the whole length of the garden and then divide those across. So essentially, you're making a series of squares like a Mondrian painting. And each of those spaces then become little garden units. And you link them. You can either you link them visually by seeing through. And also the, the cross passages, if you like, um, and actually thinking about it, I was influenced by this house because we made the garden the same time we got the house and the house is a medieval hall house with a cross passage and a great hall. And at the time it was a ruin and we were uncovering and archaeologizing all this. So the idea of a cross passage was very much part of my sort of visual vernacular, which then led into bigger spaces. So you have the cross passage of the lime walk leading into the cottage garden, the cross passage of the long walk leading into the jaw garden. Um, so there was that influence. That was a structural thing, a practical thing. And thirdly, my life had been pretty disastrous and chaotic at that time. We, our business had gone under. I had had profound bouts of depression. Um, they, in the old days, you would have called it a nervous breakdown, but I basically was out of work and the whole thing had fallen apart. My world had fallen apart completely. So making the garden was was a both conscious and a subconscious act of rebuilding my life. 
And I think strong structure was part of that. A strong, linear structure marked out on the ground that was growing as I was growing back into it was a kind of statement of intent uh, that was important to me. Now, I wasn't aware of that at the time. I didn't think that consciously, but with hindsight, I think it was there. Whether I do the same again, no, I wouldn't do the same again. I'm, I'm not the same person. Um, I've learned a huge amount. We're talking 30 years ago. Um, you know, the, the drawings I could show you that this garden is based upon were all finished by January 93. So, you know, it's, it's, it was another time. So I think I would, I know the site much better. I think I would take you more diagonally across. I would probably use more winding paths um, rather than being so linear. But I'm perfectly happy with it. I mean, I don't, I don't in any way regret. I don't regret anything we've done, actually. It was a garden. I made it. Um, you know, I'm making, I've made other gardens since. Uh, uh, and they're different. Um, and a garden, and, yeah. as you've always said, always evolves. And you yeah. continue to make gardens within the space itself. I mean, I, I guess what I would remember from the very first time I saw it, probably 10 yeah. years ago, uh, was there were fewer spaces. And now uh, there yeah, are, I think, fewer. almost as many as, what is it up to now, 28, 29, 20, 30? Uh, 30? Uh, I think there are, there are actually not that many. I think all in all, there are about 23, 24. Right. yeah. So um, tell us how that came about. Well, there are a number of ways. It's one, as I said, there was this, this deliberate um, Mondrian-like division into mm. squares and rectangles, not all the same size. So they, they created rooms. And, that, and bearing in mind, when we were making gardens in the 80s and early 90s, garden rooms were very much part of the vernacular, the language we used. As I say, prairie gardening didn't effectively exist in the UK then, at least. So garden rooms, each that had their own character or planting scheme, and yet each was not wholly disconnected. I mean, they were linked in some way to other garden rooms, either by entrances and visually with views and vistas, um, or maybe even thematically. So that was that was a key part of it. And the other thing was, is that really when television came to town, as I say, we started filming here in February 2011, uh, there came with it an insatiable, voracious appetite for editorial, for content. And whereas up until 2011, Sarah and I effectively could grow the same thing in the jewel garden, but just try and do it better or slightly differently or try out different varieties of the same thing. I mean, okay, good example of the four pots in the centre of the jewel garden. Uh, we would grow, let's say, cannas and dahlias and cosmos in them. We did that. Fine. That's one year. Next year, they said, what are you going to grow in the four pots? And I said, dahlias and cannas and cosmos. We can't do that. We did that last year. We need something different. And that's the conversation we've had every year for the last 11 years. And that applies to every pot in the garden. It applies to every border in the garden. It applies to every area in the garden. So that's of what exists. And then every single year, 
in February or, or sometimes a little earlier, um, somebody will say, right, what are we doing that's new this year? What new project are we doing? Hence um, the writing garden, the paradise garden, the wooden greenhouse, the wildlife garden, the, um, what have we done? Well, the, the big changes in the herb garden where the box balls were, the vegetable garden becoming the cottage garden. So they've all been quite big projects that we undertake, not as a makeover, but but over a period of a year of Paradise Garden. Actually, it was more like 18 months. Um, we've really, truly run out of space. I mean, we have no more space to make new gardens without radically, without radical changes. I mean, in other words, i.e. dividing up the jewel garden. So the jewel garden used to extend to where the, jewel, the grass borders are. Grass borders were cut, were taken from the jewel garden. Um, they were all part of it. Uh, although by 2010, we were growing grasses throughout the jewel garden. So what we did is take all the grasses, okay, let's put them all into one area. Yeah, I mean, we, we've taken out hedges, we've put in hedges, we've planted trees, we've cut down trees. So, so the point being is, we have reached a point, as gardeners, we don't need novelty all the time. I mean, I've been I've been working on a garden in Greece for the last six seven years. That, that is gives me another experience. We have another garden elsewhere that is as different as could be, which is another experience, uh, which is much wilder, and we we grow lots of trees. So, to a certain extent, my gardening kick can be got from doing exactly what I did last year. I get, I, I, it's rather like the vegetables. I grow... Uh, my my pleasure from the uh, yew cones in the front garden doesn't diminish just because I've seen them before. You know, an incredibly beautiful bunch of sweet peas is nonetheless incredibly beautiful just because they were the same last year. I guess you have the, you have the impetus that so many people don't who've been in a garden for so long because it's easy to live with what you've created and feel, I'm not sure if I've got the energy or or the commitment or, or the vision even to create something new. You're forced, I guess, by by the nature of the, the, the beast that is, you know, mm. the team, all of us viewers, we want, to, we want to see every week, oh, what have you done since last week, let alone since last year? So I guess it gives you an impetus and a requirement, which which I guess is double-edged. It's, it is completely double-edged. I mean, I... I think I've told you this story before, but it's worth repeating, is when I first went to Berryfields in 2003, they gave me carte blanche to, to make of it what I wanted. They said, look, treat it as your garden. So I started for the first year or so, basically, to do a version of this garden at Berryfields. And that, of course, for anyone who didn't ever watch it at that time, was the was the your original yeah. location yeah. for Gardens yeah. World, which which was rented from uh, exactly somebody. it was rented yeah. from a couple, and then we made a program. I think it was the fortieth anniversary or the thirtieth anniversary or something of Gardens World, and to make that program, I went and visited all the other locations. There were Percy Throwers. There was Clax Farm. There was. Um, Jeff Hamilton's, uh, I went to Alan Titchmarsh's garden. And it was really going to Barnsdale, which was Jeff Hamilton's garden, that was an eye-opener. Because for anybody who hasn't been there, 
it's a collection of small, disparate gardens that really are, are not, certainly when I visited it in 2004, were barely connected in any way at all. They were sort of separate plots with mown grass between them. I mean, they weren't, they, and, and they, they didn't seem, by and large, to, to have any, be part of any bigger plan. They were all done quite independently and seemingly spontaneously. So as a garden, quite frankly, it didn't work at all. It wasn't my, you know, it, it wasn't, but as a television set, it was brilliant. And then I went to Alan's garden as was, and that had lots of very small bits side by side, cheek by jowl, with almost no separation. But again, they, they worked incredibly well. I mean, he understood what was needed because you don't need a lot of difference. You just need lots of differences. It doesn't... So, for example, the jewel garden on television would work just as well at half the size, without any question. It needs that volume of space to work within the concept of our garden because, as you know, it, it has this energy. It has a huge amount of growth, so it needs a big space. But in terms of filming, you don't. Mm. Not at all. And yet, um, yes, being in it in the height of summer, you know, I can think of times, you know, July is past, July, August... Bosh, this enormous immersive location of colour and height and volume. Exactly. And and we do film it and we film it, well, we, we film it from above and we try and get it, but it's actually very hard to get it. Um, so I came back to Berryfields and said, okay, what we need to do here is make lots of little, little different areas. And if you will remember Berryfields, that's when we made, for instance, we then made fruit garden. I said, let's have three different little fruit gardens. We'll have the town fruit garden, we'll have the exotic fruit garden, and we'll have a sort of basic allotment fruit garden. And they were small. They were the size of this room. We made our sort of exotic garden, dry garden, green garden. Um, we had a garden that was Joe's design, a garden that was Carol's design, a garden that was my design. We, we, I think we ended up, by the end of my time there, which was in 2008, uh, with about 15 different areas whereas before it was basically a seamless garden. And that works on television. So when we came back here, I knew we had to do that, but at the same time I had to deal with the fact I didn't want to do anything that felt wrong for this garden. And I think we're, we pushed that boundary, we pushed that envelope. The BBC has always been incredibly supportive of the fact that it's a family garden and it's private, and we, li- we were here before they were. And we will hopefully will be here after they go. But at the same time, they've got 32 hours of television to make every year. You know. And, and which of the more recent gardens or areas you've created within Longmeadow have perhaps been most influenced by that need to generate something new? I mean, would it be the Paradise Garden or, well, or even uh, the garden you're creating right now in the Dry Garden that has its influences? Uh, it's difficult because the, the, a strong influence has been, I do these other trips, I do mm. these programs. So the Paradise Garden was directly influenced by the series I, I made it when it was only two programs uh, on called Paradise Gardens, which was basically on Islamic gardens. And I wanted to, to make something, and we had a space that came free because a greenhouse became unsafe. So I had the choice, I had to put another greenhouse up there, which... I guess we would have done if we hadn't been filming. Or to say, look, we've got an 
we've suddenly got a new space we didn't have before. Uh, so that was very much a, a sort of collaboration between outside influence, circumstance, and the desire for new content. I think the wildlife garden probably was the most is is the most artificial, in the sense that the whole of Long Meadow is a wildlife garden. You know, it's it, it's what we've done is condense all the elements of a wildlife garden into a relatively small space. But having said that, I really like it. I, I'm very happy with it. That's, know, that's it, so interesting you say that because I, I find it, um, because obviously I, I have the pleasure yeah. of coming along every so often with yeah. a photographer and we, we photograph it and it feels one of the most natural places. Yeah. Um, even, even with a, a more defined path that you have now, a little bench in there, but it feels so natural. But you, but you see, I think what the reason why is because what I said, it condenses the elements mm. of Longmeadow. So in other words, it's feeding off what was already there. It, we haven't imposed anything on Longmeadow that feels out of tune in any way. Um, so, so that, although being the most artificial in the sense that we definitely wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for television, actually, it's worked incredibly well. Uh, I think the changes to the dry garden, no, television didn't ask for that at all. I did that entirely off my own bat mainly because my youngest son had a supply of stone uh, in his garden, which he didn't quite know what to do with. I mean, a really lot of stone that, that was there when he moved in. And I said, look, I, I'd love to use some. And I had no idea what for, but I just thought there must be a way of using this creatively. And it really goes back to this, having spent a lot of time in Greece recently, and seeing gardens there and seeing, you know, the way stone used and the dry, combination of dry garden, grease. Um, so that, I think, I don't feel, I think, that as, as we said earlier, the mound was by far the hardest to make come good. I'm very happy with the orchard beds. Now, that was done for telly. We, that was all grass before. And we dug it all up. I mean, they're big, as you know. That we're talking about a, a really substantial planting, but I think it works. I like it, and the, and I like the fact that it's ongoing. And it, I, I, you see, I am a strange contradiction between not wanting change for change's sake, but loving change when I'm inspired by it. When I want to do it, I love the energy of change, and God, and it's completely accept that gardens do change, whether you like it or not. They do, and they're going to. You know, and and that's that, and but I don't, I don't like novelty. For novelty's sake, I like change for creativity to make something to make something that is new and good, rather than just new because it, just because it's new. Mm, mm. Um, and talking of change, I think you know one thing we could we could sort of end on really is is over thirty years, uh, mm. the impact of climate change. Mm, on Longmeadow and and tell us about that. Huge, you say, but how has that taken effect? What have well, you what have you observed? And there's obviously weather, which is not the same as climate, mm -hmm. but the weather has manifested itself in wetter winters. By although last winter was actually very dry, but in general, wetter winters, um, drier springs and autumns, and wetter summers. Um, so we flood more. Um, the drier spring is 
becoming quite a feature because it's dry and cold. So we have more frosts in April than we ever do now in December or January. And that, that in itself is a weird thing to say. As a child, I mean, that would be unthinkable. Um, we, we find that the levels of light in summer are starting to make a real difference, not just in how things are growing. Some things are not growing because they're not getting enough light because of the cloud cover. It's just, so you mean, you know, yes, there's less, there's less light. Yeah, than... because, because it's wetter, there's mm. more cloud. Mm. Now, the wetness actually in summer can be drizzle. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's torrential rain. It's just sort of damper. We have more fungal problems. Everything's a bit more lush because it's warmer. It's not cold in summer. It's warm and wet. Um, we have more aphid problems. We have more fungal problems. We uh, have less light, so some plants are struggling. Our Mediterranean plants are struggling. Um, some plants are behaving oddly. We're finding that we're getting blossom in autumn. We're having plants that aren't flowering in spring that needed to ripen on wood. So our spring flowering plants, uh, our witch hazel, for example, this year, which never grows terribly well for us, barely flowered at all. I mean, really, hardly at all. Um, I don't know if that's directly a result of climate change, but I suspect so. Um, we are finding that spring is coming appreciably earlier and autumn is ending appreciably later. You know, it's now autumnal in November, whereas even 30 years ago and certainly 40 years ago, you could guarantee there would be 10 days of hard frost in November when the garden would just be blitzed and it was, everything would just die back. And for instance, if you wanted to do any landscaping, it was a great month to do it because the ground would be hard, it'd be frozen all day, and basically you put the garden to bed. Now you can have roses blooming in December. But, you know, you, you, you can keep it going into the new year. And is it influencing how you plan? Yeah, of course it is. Because, but, but I think the main thing is we're all learning. We're making it up as we go along. <laughs> you know, the nature of a trend is it happens slowly and tends to happen with hindsight. You realise the trend has happened or has become established usually, well, certainly years after it has got going because you didn't... The first few years, they're not a trend. It's just a sort of repetition. Um, and actually, I don't even know now if these are trends or if this is a very short cycle. Climate change, as we know, is A, gradual, although frighteningly fast, but in the scheme of things, it's gradual, and B is cyclic. I mean, there are, there are going to be cold winters, there are going to be hot, dry summers, there are going to be wet summers. It's, it's the gradual change that is making the difference, not any one year, or it's certainly not any one season. Um, but we have to react to what's happening. And, and I think that, you know, it's very difficult. As you know, I grow a lot of tender plants, uh, particularly for the jewel garden. And it's a nightmare trying to store them to after the last frost because you're never quite sure when it is. I mean, it's certainly, I wouldn't dare put anything out now. Even though the weather forecast is quite good, you know, I just wouldn't risk it. 
So um, you wouldn't be putting anything out until when? Would it be June well, or you risk it in May? It. And May, certainly May. It used to be, if you wanted to be absolutely safe, Chelsea, which was the second, well, the earliest would be the second week of May and the latest would be the last week of May. I think now, blah, 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 second week of May. Get into May. Have a, have a four or five days of May with no frost and a weather forecast that doesn't predict any. I mean, one of the great things of modern life, weather forecasts have become much more accurate. Uh, so now you can get a really good five-day weather forecast. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all gardeners, we, we're obsessed by the weather. You know, we we check it all the time. So just ending on ending on thinking ahead and, uh, you know, God forbid, come the day that the Don household downsizes. Hmm. Which bits of Long Meadow would you recreate or take with you in making that next garden? Um, well, on one level, the, the knee-jerk response is a vegetable garden because I'd always grow vegetables wherever I was and I'd probably grow them in raised beds. So, so that, but, but that's a given, you know, I mean, I'd always do that. Um... I'd always want roses. It would be... It would be a toss-up between more topiary, which doesn't feature very heavily in the programme, but does feature heavily in my life. The grass borders, which... And the cottage garden. Um, So if we said topiary would go into the cottage garden, I'd take the cottage garden and the grass border. Funnily enough, the one, the bit that I just wouldn't take, absolutely, definitely, is the jewel garden. Because that belongs here. That's, that's, that's of this place, of this time, been there, done that. And if we weren't filming, I mean, Sarah and I have often talked about scrapping the jewel garden completely and doing something else completely different. It's incredibly labour-intensive. Um, and if we downsize, that would be the first thing to go uh, because it's crazy <laughs> in terms of labour intensiveness, but rather wonderful at its best. So, you know, I, some of the things that people might think most obvious is, a, is, is the first thing to go. Um, all my other gardening, whether for other people or for myself, is much more naturalistic, much, much wilder, much more based around trees, long grass. Uh, we've been making wildflower meadows in our other bit of land, and they give me every bit as much pleasure as the garden. So, yeah, uh, uh, that, that's the direction I'm moving into. Would it be daunting to move to something smaller? No, not at all. I'd do it tomorrow. Um, I won't. We have no plans to leave. I mean, we really seriously have talked about it. And I, because apart from anything else, who would buy this garden? I mean, it's worthless. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's oh, one I think you'd have things. a lot of people lining up for it. Well, they, they, <laughs> let me tell you, uh, they have, probably have no concept of how much work is involved in keeping it. But my experience of, of making an idiosyncratic garden is, you know, you have a choice. You either accept that it was yours. And when you go, don't look back, don't, don't find out what happened to it. Or it becomes a public monument and you say, okay, you want the garden? 
you take it, open it to the public, but as you know, that's an impossibility here because there'd be no parking. You couldn't, couldn't get people here. So short of buying the next-door neighbour's field and making it into a car park, that could never happen, and it won't. So I, don't, I, I think we'll probably end up living here till we're old and decrepit and the garden will be this jungle and somewhere in it, you know, people say there used to be a jewel garden in there and they used to grow roses and there'll be the odd rose peeking out of the, out of the nettles and the brambles. You know. That's how it'll be. And there you'll be underneath a stone like Nigel. I will be next to poor old Nigel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> push, literally pushing up the daisies. <laughs> Oh, we shouldn't end on such a morbid note, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I guess Long Meadows, uh, for many people, it's, a, it's an ideal. Well, it is for me. I'm aware of that. I mean, you know, let's be honest. 99% of the time, there's nowhere else I want to be. You know, people always say, say you're so lucky to travel and see all these gardens. And yes, I am. But, but most of the time I want to go home. You know, I think, oh, God, I'm missing the roses or I'm missing this or I'm missing that. Uh, I mean, what's great about seeing the other gardens is the intellectual stimulation. But for, for pure pleasure and sort of spiritual food and emotional food, it's nothing matches this garden. But that's because it's this garden, not because I'm so good or it's so good. It's just it's home. You know, it's us. Um, and it's, I mean, I have to say at the moment, it's looking pretty damn good by any standards. It's pretty good. And I don't take any, well, I take some pride in it, but I'm not very good on pride. I don't really deal in pride. I just take pleasure in it. And the the fact that aren't I lucky that, that my life has been able to do this, you know, that, that, that's, that it's partly, as I said earlier, I know how much hard work went into it and know that, not many people could have done that because you had someone obsessed and healthy and strong and able and prepared to give give resources to it that most people would regard as insane. You know, no holidays, no fancy cars, no none of all that stuff. It just went into the garden. Um, but in the end of the day, that's fine. That was a good deal as far as I'm concerned. So now I reap the fruits of that. I walk around at dusk or early in the morning and just think, yeah, that's all right. That's worked out okay. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.